It's Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. Today, across the country, white populations in historically black, Hispanic, and Asian communities have grown dramatically, in some cases making the neighborhoods unrecognizable to longtime residents. A New Orleans Treme neighborhood, one of the oldest black communities in the country, is no exception. The Washington Post's Marissa Lang was part of a team of reporters looking into these patterns of gentrification in cities across the country. She'll join us today to talk about the findings, and reporter Kezia Setuan went behind the scenes with three Mardi Gras crews as they created their signature throws. That's a little later in the program. Up first... New Orleans is one of the few major American cities without some form of rapid transit. Now the Regional Transit Authority is trying to change that with plans for a new faster bus line that would connect New Orleans East and the West Bank to downtown on a single route. But a city council committee dealt those plans an early blow this week. Here to tell us more is Metro reporter Carly Berlin. Carly, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's get right to it. What exactly the RTA is hoping to see with this rapid transit plan? The good news. (laughs) So the RTA has been planning this thing called a bus rapid transit or BRT project. This is pretty different from your normal everyday bus. In other BRT projects across the country, buses get dedicated lanes, sometimes painted a bright color to help distinguish them from the others and often priority signals at traffic lights to help them move through cities more quickly. Part of the idea is getting the benefits of something like a rail system without needing to pay to build a whole new rail system. And what the RTA is looking to do here is build a single bus rapid transit line that would connect New Orleans East and Algiers to the Central Business District. They got months of input last year, and in January, they put out their preferred route for the new line to take. It would be about 15 miles and go from Lake Forest Boulevard in the east, near the hospital and the library, across the Danziger Bridge, down Elysian Fields through the CBD, and then over the Crescent City Connection out to the West Bank. The whole route today would take about 90 minutes, but the RTA says the BRT line could cut that travel time down to about an hour. So the RTA has pushed this as a way to both improve service for people who rely on the bus to get around now and potentially entice people who would typically drive to take transit too. Now that was the good news, but this week... The council, some New Orleans City Council members, expressed a little dissatisfaction with the route. Right. So earlier this week on Tuesday, the RTA went in front of the City Council Transportation Committee. Basically, they were there to get the council's sign-off on their proposed route before they go try to get federal funding to actually help build it. And the interim CEO for the RTA, Lona Edwards-Hankins, made it clear that they were only looking for the council to greenlight the general route, not the specifics like what bus lanes might look like on a street-to-street basis. That would all come with more study over the next year or so. Here's Hankins speaking at the meeting. And what you're voting on essentially is the where, not the how. So this is the proposed route, and what we're asking for is our board adopted the route, and then in the next phase, we would do more detailed studies to determine the how. But Councilmember Freddie King, who represents Algiers, wasn't happy with this route. 
He took issue with the possibility that a lane on the Crescent City Connection might become a dedicated bus lane. Now, that is far from decided, but King said his constituents in Algiers are worried that that move could make traffic worse over the bridge. There were two meetings that RTA had in Algiers that was heavily attended by Algiers residents, and the consensus was it's not wanted on the West Bank. King moved to delay the committee's vote on the proposed bus rapid transit route and asked the RTA to bring some alternatives to the table next month. Got it. So the vote was delayed. But what does that mean for these plans going forward? So it's not entirely clear. Hankins from the RTA said they could come back to the council with a new resolution in March that basically would clarify that no real decisions have been made yet about just how exactly these new buses would get over the Crescent City connection. She also said potentially cutting out the West Bank portion of this route would be really premature and potentially a lost opportunity to help people in that part of town get over to the East Bank more quickly. Now, getting bus rapid transit off the ground, it's going to be a long journey regardless. With all the planning and the funding the RTA needs, we probably wouldn't see these new buses on the road until 2027 at the earliest. But, you know, New Orleans isn't an easy city to get around as it is now. Our public transit system isn't all that great compared to a lot of other places. And this delay from the council could set the RTA back from bringing some better service here in the future. More to come, obviously. Carly, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Reporter Carly Berlin. I'm Carl Lingle. This is Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. In the 20th century, white flight transformed many American cities as white people moved in droves from urban centers to the suburbs. But in the last decade, we've seen the reverse. The Washington Post's Marissa Lang was part of a team of reporters looking into these patterns of gentrification in cities across the country. Many Louisianans are very familiar with Treme neighborhood. It's one of the oldest, if not the oldest, black communities in the country. I'd like you to talk a little bit about the history of this. The, fill us in a little bit more. When was the community founded? What was its heyday? And when did that all start to change? Sure. Um, in the early 1800s, uh, the neighborhood that is now known as Treme was subdivided by a man named Claude Treme, who owned a plantation there. And he sold those subdivisions to the city of New Orleans. And that area became one of the few places in the city and certainly a, a lot of the South at the time where free Black folks could live, where they could own property, where they could do business. And pretty much ever since then, it has been, as you mentioned, this historically African-American neighborhood. And let's look at some numbers that you found as you went through this. Part of the investigation, you looked at census data from 2010 to 2020. What did you find as far as the increase in white residents, both Treme and, I guess, surrounding neighborhoods, and a decrease in residents of color? Sure. So we we really started to look at these numbers when we got the data from the 2020 census count. And I don't know if you recall, but the 2020 census top line when those numbers came out in the whole country was the white population in the United States was constricting for the first time since we started counting people. And, and that decline made a lot of news. When we sat down to look at the numbers in more granular detail, what we noticed was the one place where that was not happening, where white folks were making really big gains were cities and, and not just cities, but 
inner cities, neighborhoods traditionally that had been Black, Latino communities. So when I started looking into New Orleans, um, we identified 35 census tracts in the city of New Orleans where the white population had jumped up nine percentage points or more in the last decade. Um, And that is a pretty significant increase. A lot of those neighborhoods um, really started to change uh, in the early aughts, certainly after Hurricane Katrina. But what happened in the last decade was that change really accelerated and expanded. So you have a number of neighborhoods, uh, the Bywater, St. Rock, um, in the area right around Treme that have become majority white in the last 10 years. And so you have this neighborhood, this historically relevant Black neighborhood that when we look at our map of the census tracts that are flipping is surrounded. It's sort of being closed in on by all sides um, or from all sides by these neighborhoods where the white population is going up and up and up. And that has been really unsettling for the folks who live there. Was there any specific reason why are residents of color then moving out, I guess? Is it the combination of higher prices, the neighborhood and the faces changing, lack of housing that's suitable? I think it's a combination of all of those things. Part of it, you know, in in New Orleans specifically, it's impossible to extricate the story from the story of Hurricane Katrina and what that did to the city. Um, After that storm and after the flooding, it became really clear to a lot of folks that the most prized parts of the city were the parts on higher ground. And so a lot of the communities that started to really change over were the ones that were the higher elevation neighborhoods. Um, Treme is also a higher elevation neighborhood. So the property values in those communities started to go up. Um, When property values increase, that means that people who want to cash out will sell their homes. That means that land landlords might evict their tenants to cash out on their properties. It means that rents will go up if they're looking for new tenants. It means that property taxes will go up. So even if you own your home, it might become difficult to continue to afford to stay in a community like that. So I think you have a lot of factors going on. And, and you also have frankly, cities that are courting a different class of people. I think that in the last decade, we've seen a lot of cities, New Orleans certainly included, um, trying to bring in uh, a younger, more upwardly mobile, affluent class of people as a means of revitalizing, bringing new life, new money into uh, communities that are inner city communities. And when that happens, it changes the ecosystem. It changes uh, you know, what services residents expect to be provided or what types of amenities they want. You start to see things like bike lanes, right? Um, and, and things that might cater to a certain group or class of people. And all of this kind of has a domino effect and it starts to really lead to some fundamental changes, not just in um, what a city looks like, but how it functions. We're speaking now with Washington Post reporter Marissa Lang about the report, White People Have Flocked to City Centers and Transformed Them. Marissa, let's talk a little bit about the word transformed. How have white residents transformed the Treme neighborhood? You mentioned bike lanes as an example, but what changes from the porch to porch that makes it different to people that live there? 
Sure. I think that in Treme specifically, a lot of the changes have come in the form of short-term rental properties. Um, this is something that I've heard about over and over, almost to a person, every resident I talked to expressed a lot of dismay over the proliferation of Airbnbs and other types of short-term rentals in the neighborhood. Um, and that has looked like a bunch of different things. Sometimes it looks like you know, a, a family moving in next door into uh, a house and turning half of it into an Airbnb. Or sometimes it looks like someone buying up a property as an investment, flipping it, turning it into sort of a attractive, newer looking space. And then the only people they see in and out of there are tourists, are people who are not permanent residents, are coming in and out uh, for shorter stays or, you know, using it as a party house during Mardi Gras. Um, and that has also really changed the neighborhood. There's one gentleman who I spoke to in my story who lives on a block where there's more than half a dozen Airbnbs all around him. And so it, it really changes the dynamic of, of a community when you no longer have neighbors, perhaps, that are there year round, you can get to know. Um, when you have kind of this transient population moving in and out and um, changing the way that a community works. Treme is not the only neighborhood you looked into, and New Orleans was not the only city. Tell me what you found in Denver and in Los Angeles as examples. Sure. So we really wanted to look at cities and use cities as examples of different parts of this equation. You know, when we talk about gentrification, uh, it's a word get, that gets thrown around a lot, but it means different things in different places. Um, in New Orleans, because of the environmental factors, because of the short-term rentals, it's really a change that's happening home by home in these single-family communities. Um, in a place like the Southwest Waterfront in Washington, D.C., where I live, uh, it's not so much that we saw a lot of displacement of Black residents, but that the area was built up so much. Now there's these huge high-rise buildings, these luxury condominiums, uh, and they've really ratcheted up the density. So a neighborhood that used to be solidly majority Black is now majority white, not because a ton of Black residents have been displaced, but because the density has increased so much and it's just been infilled with a lot of white residents that it's fully changed the makeup of that neighborhood. Um, in some of the other communities we looked at, Denver, you mentioned, and uh, Los Angeles, we were looking at the impact on other communities of color. In Denver, it has a very long history of a deep and rich Latino community uh, that has a lot of political uh, significance, a lot of cultural significance. It's the birthplace of part of the Chicano movement in Colorado. And a lot of those neighborhoods are the ones that now um, are changing in Denver. And there is sort of an interesting interplay between what's happening in Denver and what's happening in Treme in that both cities have interstates that have cut through some of these neighborhoods. And I think it was really interesting as I did my reporting to see that, you know, I-10 in, in Treme in New Orleans split this neighborhood up, um, certainly in the 60s and 70s, had a huge impact on the commercial corridor down there. It displaced Black residents. It displaced back Black businesses. Some longtime residents still blame that overpass for disrupting and for a lot of the disinvestment that happened in the community. And in Denver, what I actually saw is they had a similar story and they took that overpass, knocked it down, and then rebuilt the interstate to run underground in an effort to kind of reunify 
those neighborhoods and reinvest in those neighborhoods and put new infrastructure into those neighborhoods. On its face, that sounds great. But what ended up happening and what I saw when I was there was this influx of money and resources actually was a catalyst for gentrification in a way. And it did a lot of the things that we see happening in these other communities where property values go up and neighbors get shaken out of their homes or evicted or pushed out because they can't afford it. And so you have kind of this double-edged sword where you have the problem when a neighborhood is disinvested and lacking resources. And when it's all brought back without perhaps uh, intentionality around keeping people situated there, it pushes them out anyway. So that was a really interesting sort of cause and effect dynamic that I, I found in um, both Denver and New Orleans. And then in Los Angeles, uh, I worked with a colleague of mine who went out there and uh, she was primarily looking at the Chinatown district. Um, not every city has a Chinatown, but those that do have seen quite a lot of turnover and quite a lot of change in those communities that are, are known for and historically very immigrant heavy, obviously very East Asian. Um, and in particular, Los Angeles is Chinatown. Uh, a lot of those communities are changing in part because of new development, new residences, um, and also becoming more white. So this article and other people's voices are certainly drawing a lot of attention to this. Is there any hope out of this for coexistence, more diverse communities, or do white people just keep moving in and that always indicates that residents of color have to leave? I think there is. I think there is reason for hope. And I think that, you know, the takeaway from this um, from my view, is not that it's always bad when neighborhoods get more resources, right? There's a lot of good that can come out of some of this reinvestment that we see. Um, in Treme, one of the places that I went to and I, I spent some time was the Treme Coffee House, which is owned by a white family. And I think that that is actually pretty instructive for how you can maintain a pretty good relationship. Um, I was in there one day and I saw a lot of the folks who I'd met in the neighborhood coming through and getting coffee or getting a sandwich. They advertise uh, small businesses, mostly black owned businesses or, you know, people's little uh, tour um, side hustles that they give around the neighborhood. And they have pictures of second lines on the walls. And I had one resident who's lived in Treme her whole life, who's a sixth generation New Orleanian, very proudly point to one of the photos and tell me that, you know, that was a relative of hers. So I think that there's a way that you can incorporate the community and make them feel welcome without establishing yourself as new and different in a way that feels alienating. And so I hope that there is a path forward where both uh, longtime residents and newcomers can coexist. But I think that depends a lot on um, what politicians and developers and, and the folks who live in these communities want to do. Marissa, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Washington Post reporter Marissa Lang. I'm Carl Lengel. This is Louisiana Considered. Ask any Mardi Gras reveler a favorite memory from Carnival's past. It might include catching a treasured throw from a parade float. Behind each prized throw is hours of work, bottles of glitter, and dozens of float riders crafting together. Reporter Kezia Setuan went behind the scenes with three crews as they created their signature throws. Parade throws during Mardi Gras come in all shapes and sizes. Many of them are beads and other cheap plastic toys, but a true carnival veteran knows that the personally designed throws from crews are special. These are the ones that end up resting on home mantles as prized possessions. 
For the crew of Muses, it's all about the shoes. When you give it to like a total stranger, it's indescribable. That's Lizette Constantine, a Muses writer and co-owner of NOLA Craft Culture. Like I've had people chase me for blocks because I pointed to them because I like their costume or their sign. And they literally run for blocks until I can get the shoe to them. And then it's like victory. (laughs) It's like so much fun. The community workspace under the Mid-City Shop has turned into a private crafting space for several crew of Muses float riders before their iconic duck-themed parade. I think I might do this whole shoe purple. The whole thing? Decorating these heels is a tall order. In one part of the room, some float riders troubleshoot how to secure a crystal fringe to the edge of a platform heel, while other members figure out the best way to drill on a plastic martini glass. But a Muses shoe isn't complete until there's the crew label and year attached to it. That's what Muses writer Megan Federico is doing. We use a little bit of puff paint and a little bit of glitter and let it, let it dry for about 24 hours, and then it peels right off. And you can Muses member Benita Plasson said there's beauty in turning discarded, tattered shoes into pieces of art. Because I think it's a love story or a love letter to the city about how you feel. According to the historic New Orleans collection, the tradition of throws has links to Roman and medieval festivities. Our current version of Mardi Gras throws, with beads, cups, and doubloons galore, came from the Rex organization in the early 20th century. The Zulu Social Aid and Pleasure Club gets credit for starting the tradition of homemade throws with the coconuts they throw to the parade crowd. And now each crew adds their own twist. In Homa, the crew of tradition takes pride in decorating their extremely intricate pecan shell throws. The crew's co-founder, Whitney Loop, said the decade-old tradition was a creative way to push for something more sustainable. I like to do sometimes magnets because it's on your fridge every single day. You get to take a look at it. And it just kind of reminds you of not only creativity within the area, but also um, preserving a tradition within this area. This year, members have been inspired to make pecans of drag queens, nature, and famous singers. The challenge is often trying to figure out the details on such a small canvas, a pecan shell, basically the size of a thumbnail. Loop says these nights of crafting also serve as a form of healing. Especially through all the things that we've endeared over the past few years that it's just really nice to be able to come together and express ourselves and um, do therapy together. (laughs) Free therapy. (laughs) Creating these throws is also a way to push each other's creativity. For Bayou Babes of New Orleans, teamwork is key. You know, we work a lot of hours trying to create these things. We spend a lot of money to create these things to give out to, to everybody for free, but it just, it absolutely becomes worth it. That's Therese Aiello, the crew's founder and co-captain. She's using hairspray to seal glitter onto 20 miniature alligators. The group's signature throw is a hand-decorated mini pirog, a small boat used by Cajuns to travel through the Martian bayous. They handed out the special throws during the Crew Bohem Parade earlier in February, the crew of choice for many local artists. Crew co-captain Christine Gausarowski painted a dragonfly with sparkly blue nail polish. I love um, fancy art and looking at fashion. She said she loves seeing the excitement on the parade route, especially when kids' faces light up after receiving something unique. Tell anybody if you're having a bad day, if you just go in a parade, it's the most lovely thing. And it's so fun to give it to a 
to someone and they give you joy back. And that's what it is. The community, love, and celebration all wrapped up in a beautiful throw for the world to enjoy. In New Orleans, I'm Kezia Satyawan. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel. Thanks to our guests, Washington Post reporter Marissa Lang and reporters Kezia Setwan and Carly Berlin. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcast. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group.